Good morning. I'm uh, Luke Proctor, the CTK intern here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to share with you today. Now, I'm, uh, so Dana is my wife. I don't know if y'all know her. She's the children's director here, and uh, she couldn't be with us today. She's in New York. Uh, she's a bridesmaid in a wedding, and this week is the bridal shower. Today's bridal shower, so she flew to New York for that. But writing a sermon without Dana is like that year the Chicago Bulls uh, didn't have Michael Jordan. When he went and played, he went and played minor league baseball. So uh, it's just a little off. But uh, uh, So if y'all could pray with me real quick. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity uh, to bring your word to these people, Lord. And uh, I'm in a suit, I'm behind a podium, and I'm behind your Bible, but... Uh, I can only speak because you gave me grace. And nothing comes from me, Lord. And I just pray that as we study John 20, we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. So we'll start by reading uh, the text. We're going to read John 20, verses 1 through uh, 29. So it's a little long, but we'll get through it. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept, and as she wept, she swooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Standing, But she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? What, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And said in that he had said the things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said that, When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, and they saw Jesus. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. So, this passage, I would argue, is the most important piece of writing ever written. Across any genre and any medium, John 20 is the most important. Because if you're a Christian, think about what you consider your favorite Bible passage, or the most important Bible passage. Maybe you think of Genesis 1, the creation story. But without a historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter what happened in the beginning. Or maybe, if you like Reformed theology, you think of Romans 8. But without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's sons are never revealed. And actually, nothing is revealed in the Bible, including in the book of Revelation. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just a turning point of history, I would argue. I would say all history runs through it, okay? It's the cornerstone of the entire universe. And because of that, we could spend days on end talking about John 20. There's an infinite amount to be gleaned from it, but we're not going to do that today. We're just going to focus on Thomas who is presented in this story as a doubting disciple. Because Thomas is met with a claim that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And Thomas is extremely doubtful. Now, if you talk to people where you work or people in your neighborhood, you'll also realize that some of them can be extremely doubtful. They'll see the story we just read, John 20, and they'll see a fairy tale, an unbelievable account. And actually, we can have our own moments of doubt even if we profess to be Christians. You may say, I don't know if I believe this. And so we're going to talk about four things today. We're going to look at this passage through Thomas's eyes. We're going to talk about the claim, the doubter, the evidence, and the truth. So the claim that's made to Thomas, we're going to talk about the doubter, why he doubts, the evidence, what Thomas had to work with, And finally, we're going to talk about the truth. So the claim. At the beginning of John 20, the disciples are facing the reality that Jesus is dead. They think about all the things that Jesus has told them. How he had a father-son relationship with the creator of the universe. 
They think about how he promised the disciples that they would play a part in bringing their nation, Israel, back to God. They think about the miracles he performed. He seemed to have infinite power over any sickness or blindness, even death. They think about the fact that Jesus claimed to people that he could forgive their sins and the fact that Jesus claimed to be God himself. And they believed him. They raised him up as their Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. But now Jesus is gone in the blink of an eye. The high priest guards snatch him up in the middle of the night. He's tried by the Jews. And then by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the next day. And before they can get their wits together, he's on a cross. And hours later, is dead. So one evening, they're celebrating the Passover with their Savior. Gleaning wisdom and knowledge from him. Exalting him, as they always have. And then the next evening, think about this. A Roman soldier is thrusting a spear into his side. Making sure that the man who told the disciples that he had the key to everlasting life is dead. And so the disciples are thinking about the last thing Jesus said on the cross. It's finished. It's finished. They immediately go into hiding. Because if the Jews and Romans had been able to combine forces and try Jesus on bogus charges and crucify him in less than a day, then all of his followers, all of his disciples are at risk. So they go into hiding together, wondering if everything is finished. Of course, we know from the beginning of John 20 that nothing is finished. And that's where we step into Thomas's shoes. Because the Sunday following the crucifixion, Thomas is out from where, whatever room these men are bunkered down in. Maybe he was checking on his family. Maybe he was running errands. But when he returns, his fellow disciples proclaim to him that they've seen Jesus. Jesus is in a resurrected body and is walking around and talking. And before they really fully understand what they are saying, they dive into telling Thomas this story. So let's look at the claim. What are they telling Thomas? What does Thomas have to work with? Mary Magdalene, not one of the official 12 disciples, but one of Jesus' most important followers, tells Thomas that she went early to the tomb, and it was empty. And she didn't know what to do. She was horrified, so she goes and gets Peter and John. John refers to himself in his gospel as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter and John take off, running to the tomb. And John confirms, yes, the tomb is empty. In fact, Jesus' burial cloths are strewn around on the floor. Peter says, I went in there. And yeah, the burial cloths are strewn on the floor. His, faith cloth, his face cloth that was on his head was neatly folded. Terrified, they again run back into hiding. And now Mary's back in the story. Mary's back in the picture saying, I went back to the tomb, weeping, thinking someone had stole the body. And now when I look in the tomb, I see two angels where Jesus' body had been laid. They're asking me why I'm crying. And then there's a man behind me asking the same thing. Why are you crying? And then he says, Mary. She turns around and it's Jesus. He doesn't quite look like he used to. He didn't recognize her at first. But it is him. So she hugs him as if to never let him go. And he says something about how he has not ascended to the Father, 
but to go and tell the disciples that he will ascend soon. So to summarize, they're telling Thomas that the tomb is empty. Jesus has been bodily resurrected. He has comforted them, saying, peace be with you. And now he wants them to continue to be his disciples. Because hours after Mary sees the tomb, uh, sees, sees Jesus, Jesus appears to them in their locked room. He didn't break down the door. He didn't pick the lock. He just appeared. But he's in a body. In fact, they tell Thomas they can still see the scars in his hands and the piercing in his side from just a Friday before. And what's more is Jesus is telling the disciples that nothing has changed. They should continue his mission to preach the gospel with the Spirit of God. And Thomas, considering all of this and hearing all of these stories, immediately comes to the decision that he doesn't buy it, that, they're bogus, that this is bogus. And that's where we come to the doubter. That's our second point, the doubter. Please think about what this means. Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, does not believe his fellow disciples when they tell him that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And there's some interesting observations here. One, Thomas is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's heard Jesus preach every, every sermon. He's seen him heal every disease. He knows he lays Lazarus from the dead, so he knows Jesus' power firsthand. Thomas's other best friends, his fellow disciples, believe, are telling him that Jesus has been resurrected. And finally, Thomas can't explain why the tomb is empty. But still, he doubts. Even though he's risked his life to be a disciple of Jesus, even though he's in hiding because he too could still be crucified, Thomas does not believe. He proclaims, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. That is what doubt looks like. And because that's what doubt looks like, Thomas is a perfect case study for us. So let's first ask the question, why does Thomas doubt his fellow disciples in the first place? Christopher Hitchens uh, was a famous atheist, philosopher, cultural commentator, and he loved to attack this idea that Jesus had resurrected from the dead when he was asked to speak on whether the God or the Bible existed in debates. In these debates, he would say, believing in the resurrection is a suspension of reality. If you saw a man executed and then three days later saw the same man walking past you down the street, you would either think that you saw a miracle or that you had made a mistake and misidentified the man being executed. What are the chances that the laws of nature were temporarily suspended in your favor? Now, that's even truer if you didn't see this man, but are just taking someone else's word for it. So what do we say when someone asks us this line of thinking if we're Christians? What do we say when we're confronted with people who doubt? Or what do we say if we ourselves are too afraid that we've gone down a rabbit hole in a faith that goes over and against the universal claim that dead people stay dead? 
You know, when you talk to people who doubt, when you talk to an atheist or agnostic who reject the idea that Jesus resurrected from the dead, you'll often hear them talk with contempt for the intellectual capabilities of people in the first century. And I think that's what Christopher Hitchens is saying here. He says, for the disciples to believe that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead means they're a bunch of knuckle-dragging morons. And I think people take that idea and explain away the claims in John 20. The disciples were idiots. And then they converted more idiots. And we're in the year 2017. And now there's hundreds of millions of these morons who still believe these outlandish stories. And we're part of that group here in the Christian church. But Thomas is proof that this is not the case. No one, and I mean no one, in Jesus' day, had any confusion about dead people staying dead. And this case is laid out wonderfully in N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is a really thick book, but I highly recommend it if you're interested in doing more research on this topic. But let me quickly run through what people in the first century believed, because it gives us a window into what Thomas is thinking. If you were a pagan, meaning if you were a Gentile, influenced by the Western or Greek world, you did not believe that you could ever come back to life. There was no recombination of the body and soul. Once you died, your soul might go off to some Hades-type place. But there was no resurrection from the dead. Now, if you were a Jew your ideas on the resurrection of Jesus were actually equally as skeptical. There were three views Jews had on resurrection. One, the most powerful group, the Sadducees in 33 AD, said resurrection was absurd. It just didn't happen. Other Jews, small minority, thought that resurrection simply means that Israel, God, Jehovah, the land, and the people will go on consistently making the world a better place, but the individual will die and sleep with their ancestors like their patriarchs before them. But finally, most Jews, and I think Thomas is most likely in this category, believe that a bodily resurrection would not take place until the final day of judgment. This was part of their eschatology, their study of the end times. And we actually see this view reflected in John's gospel account. When Jesus is comforting Martha in John chapter 11 after her brother Lazarus has died. She says, I know Lazarus will raise again on the last day. And so this was a view that resurrection was this general concept that would happen to everyone at the end of time. It was not a specific event that could occur in the first century. So the underlying theme is this. Before Easter Sunday, no one believed that a person could resurrect from the dead. And Thomas is merely relaying this idea. He's just as skeptical in the year 33 as Christopher Hitchens was in the year 2000. Everything he knows, his common sense, his logic, his view of the Jewish religion, his knowledge of history, shows him that dead people stay dead. Hence he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. If you boil down unbelief, if you boil down 
atheism or agnosticism or rejection of any religion, you'll at least boil it down to this frustration. I can't believe God because I can't see God. I can't believe God because I can't reach out and feel God. And that's what Thomas is saying. I can't hear this story and believe it. I need to observe it to believe it. Or you might be sitting there looking at this text saying, I can't just read this stuff and believe. You know, from the outside in, the Bible can be a daunting place. And we forget about this sometimes as Christians. But you might talk to people who say, why does the Bible force me to suspend reality consistently by having story after story about people going 40 days and nights without drinking, a virgin giving birth, God, the world being made in six days, a sea being pushed to the side to allow an entire people group to walk through, and dead people coming back to life. People like Thomas look at this resurrection story in John 20, and they think that they're too smart and too sophisticated to believe it. And it's not just the miracle stories that can seem absurd. You see, people look at the Bible's passages or stances on social justice or loving your neighbor, and they can agree with those. And then they'll flip over and see the Bible's stances on sexual ethics or exclusivity. And they say, what an outdated relic from a less sophisticated time. So we're not here today, though, to talk about general miracles and whether they exist or every problem people have with certain Bible texts. But if you have issues with the Bible's fantastic claims or you think that the Bible is socially backwards, I would encourage you to look at John 20 and this story as the door that opens up to the rest of the Bible. Because if you're skeptical, then you're identifying as Thomas, who thinks that this story that Jesus resurrected is pure fantasy. But let's open this door and dig a little bit into the evidence. Because if Jesus actually resurrected from the dead, then every human being has the obligation to go back and give the entire Bible a second look. And that's where we come to our third point, which is the evidence. So the goal of John 20, the goal of everything we just read, is to convince people from the moment the Easter story happened through the rest of time that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical event. So let's look at some reasons why we can be certain of the resurrection. Notice who discovers the tomb in every gospel account. It's women. That is a huge problem in the first century. If there had been a court case about the empty tomb, then the Bible's version of the Easter story would have immediately been thrown out because women's testimonies weren't accepted in first century courts of law. And it's even worse than that because the Bible describes these women as afraid and weeping, which is pure cannon fodder for the misogynist culture of the day. In fact, there's a second century philosopher who said he could not believe this resurrection account because, and I'm quoting, it was discovered by hysterical women. If you were making this up, you would not cast women, especially women who were emotional, as such key figures in your story. The second reason we can be certain of the resurrection. We've already discussed that all first century people did not believe 
in a bodily resurrection. Okay? And I think, using our logic, we can agree. People don't just come back from, de- the de- from death. So, if you were making this up, and you were trying to form a new religion, why would you start by claiming the one thing that no one believed? Instead, you would say that Jesus' spirit or ghost had appeared to you, and that he wanted his disciples to start their own religion. And then you would say that Jesus had gone to heaven. His spirit was in eternal bliss. And if you did everything, if you would tell potential converts that if they did everything that you wanted them to do, then they too would be like Jesus and their spirit would go to heaven and be in eternal bliss. And then you would manipulate everything Jesus had ever said. You would get rid about all those parts about the first being last and the last being first. You would get rid of the Sermon on the Mount. You would get rid of any reference to where leaders are told to be servants and place themselves behind others in sacrificial love. The one thing you wouldn't claim is that Jesus was a human being again. Because no one would believe you. And this is where the story gets fascinating. Because if the disciples were claiming something that no one believed, then why are there thousands of people that start to believe it in the ensuing weeks and months following Easter Sunday. That's the third reason we can be certain of the resurrection. Because the resurrection story is based on eyewitness accounts. From about 33 AD to about 90 AD, if you lived in Israel or the surrounding region, and you really wanted to know if this stuff about Jesus was true, you could go up to one of these disciples Or you could go up to one of these women, like Mary, and ask them, is this true? Did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? And they would tell you, yes, I saw it with my own eyes. There's a seemingly throwaway verse, actually, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, where Jesus, Mark's describing Jesus on his way to go be crucified. And Mark writes, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. Isn't that odd? In the middle of the passion narrative, Mark suddenly starts talking about this guy's Simon of Cyrene's sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would he say that? It's because whoever Mark is writing to knows Alexander and Rufus. He's saying, do you want to know if all this stuff about Jesus is true? Go talk to Alexander and Rufus. Their father is actually the one who helped carry Jesus' cross to the crucifixion site. You see, the gospel accounts, which all contain the resurrection story, are based on eyewitness accounts. And that's why there's an immediate explosion of belief. Finally, let's look at the counterfactual. The narrative is the most powerful form of communication in world history because we all love stories. I'm here to, so when you're in a courtroom, the prosecution and the defense team don't merely present the uh, jury with raw evidence and data and hope that they come to their side. Rather, they create a story navigating the raw evidence and data that helps out their client. And I'm here to tell you today that the Christian version of what happened on Easter Sunday is by far and away the most accepted and most plausible story. The alternate theories are weak 
at best, but are mostly impossible. There's a stolen body theory, the idea that grave robbers stole Jesus' body in the night. That's actually extremely plausible because grave robbery was very common back then. However, the reason people robbed graves was to get the expensive burial spices, which were kept in the cloths. Remember when the disciples discover Jesus' tomb, the cloths are strewn around on the floor. Also, if you unwrapped the body and then stole it, you would hasten the decomposition process. So these would have been the worst grave robbers of all time. Then there's a theory that the disciples themselves stole the body at night. And this is also extremely plausible. Until you think about the power that the Romans and the Jews this very weekend possessed. They were able to snatch Jesus, try him, and kill him in less than 24 hours. But they're going to let his disciples steal his body, claim Jesus is resurrected, and not imprison them? If they had really suspected that, they would have grabbed all 11 of the living disciples and tortured them until one of them broke and confessed to the crime. Then there's a resuscitation theory. The idea that Jesus was beaten and flogged and crucified, and then he passed out, faking his own death, and then crawled out of his tomb. And that's medically impossible. And finally, there's a hallucination theory. that The disciples, because of their grief, were so upset that they hallucinated and thought they had seen Jesus. And this theory seems plausible. I bet if Thomas had a theory, he would have thought it was a hallucination theory. The disciples were acting crazy. There's lots of spiritual mystery that surround the early church. But, how would Mary, John and Peter, the disciples, the men on the road to Emmaus, all have the same hallucination? The likelihood that the same hallucination could occur at different places, at different times, to different people, each with their own separate psychological and emotional functions, is also medically impossible. So none of the alternative theories hold water. I suggest you that the traditional answer is the correct answer. The evidence points to the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But we are not Christians because of evidence. And that's where we get to the final point, which is the truth. The truth. Why is Thomas, despite the evidence, insistent that he too see the risen Jesus? Why doesn't he just go along with his fellow disciples and agree with them? It would be so much easier. I think it's because Thomas has the highest regard for finding the truth out for himself. And I think that if you talk to people, they will say that their life is all about finding the truth. And this is very noble, actually. We're told to love the truth seeker in newspaper reports, in movies, in books. We're, we love people like Neo, right, who exposes and discovers the Matrix. We like people like Harry Potter, who is constantly trying to figure out why he's the boy who lived. And we like all the president's men, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, wondering what did President Nixon know about the Watergate break-in and when did he know it? And we seek the truth from a young age. We're always asking, why, why, why? And our questions just become more and more complicated. Why am I here? 
Why does God allow evil? Why is God sovereign when there is so much pain and suffering? Why do I feel the way I do? Why, do I, why am I the way that I am? Maybe that's the reason you like being in church. Because the church helps you answer your why questions. And maybe that's the same reason your next door neighbor doesn't like being in church. It does nothing for their why questions. And maybe you're like Thomas, and you think that if I can't get the physical evidence, if I can't be proved that all these wild stories in the Bible are true, then I will never believe. You see, I think it's actually possible to take our search for answers too far. And I suggest to you today that our society has actually made an idol out of the quest for truth. And I think this is summed up perfectly, actually, of all places in a Supreme Court case. Uh, In the famous case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in his majority opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy stated, at the heart of liberty, excuse me, Kennedy says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of human existence, of meaning in the universe, and the mystery of human life. I'm not saying that trying to find the truth in all things isn't important. It's extremely important. But there's people like Kennedy and Thomas, Thomas a disciple, who are forgetting the most important aspect of seeking truth. Because actually, prior to Easter Sunday, Thomas had doubted Jesus to his face the night before he was crucified. Jesus was describing to them, trying to prepare the disciples that he was leaving trying to prepare them for his death. And he says, I'm going to go be with my father. And Thomas cuts him off and says, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? And Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. In our quest for truth, as noble as it can be, we can become like Thomas and forget that truth, with a capital T truth, is a person. And that person in John 20 is revealed to us as a risen Jesus Christ. So let's pick back up at the text in verse 26. Eight days later, this is a week after Easter Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He remembers now. He remembers that Jesus is the reality. He professes Jesus to be God, meaning Jesus invented reality, invented the very thing we call truth. But what do we say to people that are still searching? Because even though Thomas believes, that doesn't mean that all doubt goes away. And let's answer that question 
with this question. What does Jesus mean when he says he's the truth? If you're unsatisfied with your questions, the answers to your questions of life's heart, excuse me, if you're unsatisfied with the answers to life's hardest questions, the Bible is exactly where it thinks you are. The Bible is exactly where it thinks you are. Because the Bible is the most honest piece of literature ever written. And it says that the reason you have pain and frustration and you're unsatisfied with your questions inside of you, and the reason when you look out you see so much poverty and pain outside of you, is because the world is encompassed in sin. And it defines sin as the rejection of God. It says the entire world is rebelling against God. It says that if you feel far from God, or if you don't believe in God, it's because you live in the world that it has rebelled from God. It's because you've placed yourself at the center of your life. And there's nothing, not a religion, not a philosophy, not a wise grandmother who can explain our problems to us better than that. But why in the discussion of doubt and truth are we suddenly talking about sin and sin's all-corrupting power? It's because in John eight thirty-two, Jesus tells us what knowing the truth, what knowing him and believing in him is all about. At first, Jesus paints a grim picture of the world saying people are born slaves to sin. That you're born a slave to selfishness. That you have cast God out of the center of your life and placed yourself on a pedestal. And as a result of all that selfishness, the world can become a rough place. And you become a slave to sin. But then Jesus tells his followers, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or if you believe in me, You're free from that selfishness. You're free from that sin. He didn't say you shall know the truth and all of your questions will be immediately answered or all your longings will be immediately satisfied or the pain that you feel will immediately go away. But he did say that if you believe in him, you have the opportunity finally not to place yourself at the center of your life. He's willing to bear our selfishness. He gets rid of the things that keep us from God. And we become like Jesus. We get to become God's sons and daughters. And we get to live life as it was meant to be lived. Uh, One of my favorite authors is this guy named Ron Curry Jr. In his first novel, which came out about 10 years ago, uh, talked about the concept of God being dead. It's actually called God is Dead. And the story goes that... uh, God enters the form of a Middle Eastern woman in Sudan, goes to a refugee camp, and is murdered. And as word gets out to the world that God is dead, the world becomes encompassed in chaos. People literally worship themselves and form their own personal religions. World War III breaks out. There are no rules. There's mass suicides everywhere. And the world comes to an end in just complete and utter chaos. Christianity is the exact opposite. 
The world is in chaos, and God, in the form of Jesus, comes down to us. And sure enough, Jesus is killed, but, he's ki- but when he is killed, he bears the chaos of this world and allows us to live life as it was meant to be lived. He overcomes our chaos. That's what the resurrection means. And I think that John 20 is a perfect place to start. If you ever meet someone who's never read a sentence of the Bible, John 20 is a great place to begin. Because now, Thomas, in his doubt, looks at the cross that for those couple days was probably humiliating. But he, now he looks at it through the empty tomb. He sees the conquering of death and the conquering of sin. Because that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's what the resurrection illuminates for us. That God stood in the gap between God and that Jesus stood in the gap between God and man. The empty tomb is proof that he conquered all sin and God was satisfied in his sacrifice. And this means that since Jesus is the truth, you're forever free. And yes, even your longings and all those questions will be answered in the life to come. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we read this passage and we think about this passage, that we'll remember why you're the truth. That you're the one we're seeking. And you're the one who removes us from our chaos. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to get together with these believers. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage us this week in your word. Amen.